Hi, and welcome to the Bill Podcast. How's everybody doing today? It's a beautiful day outside. The sun is shining, and I hope you're drinking some water. Got to take care of yourself. Well, today's article that we're going to be discussing is quite an extensive one. It's pretty long, so I'm going to try to be more myself, be kind of more zany, make it a little more entertaining for you guys. All right. Article today is The Comprehensive History of Investigations into Trump. That's a big one. There's there's a lot of them. Alright, so no matter how you feel about him, this article will try to summarize the six years of investigations, surveillances, and lies that initiated and furthered investigations into Donald J. Trump. The reason I felt the need for this article is that I realized there isn't a comprehensive history of investigations into Trump anywhere on the internet. Like, I looked, I searched. So I will attempt to fulfill that need. I will keep this as balanced as possible, because I know how people feel about Trump. But I believe everybody will be forced to acknowledge the unparalleled scrutiny that this guy has faced. Alright. The first one that we got is the Trump-Russia collusion. You guys remember that, don't you? 2016, the, you know, Russians stole the election. Well, we're going to go way back. In as early as 2016, the Clinton campaign paid for a tech company to hack servers in former President Donald Trump's residences and the White House, guys, to gather derogatory information on him during the 2016 campaign and while he was president. That's insane. Like, do you realize they literally spied on a freaking president? This company had almost unfettered access to servers through their arrangement with the government and now used it to monitor Trump's internet traffic at Trump Tower, Trump's Central Park West apartment, and the executive office of the president. Also an unnamed healthcare provider, but, you know, that's not super important. Just they got his medical information. Now, Michael Sussman, a Clinton campaign lawyer, then took all that data, exaggerated searches to Russian IP addresses, and then peddled that information to the FBI, saying that the Trump campaign had back back channels to a Alpha Bank, which is a Russian bank without ever even disclosing to them that they worked for the Clinton campaign. Again, I'm talking about Michael Sussman. At the same time, the main sources for the Steele dossier, which was mainly Igor Danchenko, got most of his information from a man named Charles Dolan Jr. Now, Charles Dolan Jr. was a state chairman for Bill Clinton's 1992 and 1996 presidential campaigns and in 2016, quote, actively campaigned and participated in calls and events as a volunteer on behalf of Hillary Clinton. (laughs) Who would have guessed? Now, his clients in this uh, campaign also included the Russian Federation and a Russian state-owned energy company. Wow. Wow, guys. Who would have guessed that? I mean, it's kind of crazy, is it not? I mean, I'm trying to play balanced here, but let's just be honest here. This was again contrary to what was told to the FBI and to the media, 
which was that the information came from a well-respected informant from within the Kremlin. This all came to light because Denchenko was questioned under oath by the FBI in 2017 about the dossier. Remember, Danchenko was the main source for most of the information in the dossier. <clears throat> Regardless of this, the media ran with it as a central piece of evidence against Trump for following years. The FBI then takes the information they've gotten from Michael Sussman and from Christopher Steele's dossier and take it to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, or the FISA Court, to try to obtain a warrant to spy on Trump campaign advisor Carter Page. Remember him, that nobody that everybody forgot about? Well, he's important now. The FBI then lied to the FISA court, withholding the fact that the, Kent, that the Clinton campaign was behind Steele's work. Nor did the FBI and Justice Department inform the court that Steele's allegations had never been verified. To the contrary, each FISA application, the original one October 2016, and three renewals at 90-day intervals is labeled verified application. And each one makes this representation. Quote, the FBI has reviewed this verified application for accuracy in accordance with its April 5th 2001 procedures, which include sending a copy of the draft to the appropriate field offices, end quote. In reality, guys, the applications were never verified for accuracy. Well, at least not until much later with the Inspector General. But let's go back. Even before that, a separate FBI investigation called Operation Crossfire Hurricane was opened in July of 2016 by Peter Strzok. This guy is very important. Pay attention. He was the leading investigator in the Hillary Clinton email investigation that refused to prosecute her. On March 6th, George Papadopoulos accepted an offer to work with the Trump campaign. As part of his duties with the London Center of International Law Practices, on March 12th, he traveled to the Link Campus University in Rome to meet with officials you know, officials with the university. <clears throat> now, while on this trip, on March 14th, he met Maltese professor Joseph Mifsud and informed the professor about his joining the Trump campaign. Now, Mifsud took that information, went back to the Kremlin, and then, upon his return, he told Papadopoulos that Russian government officials were in possession of thousands of emails that could be politically damaging to Hillary Clinton. Now, you know, Papadopoulos working for the Trump campaign was obviously interested in this. Now, the DNC had just been hacked, and it had been tied to a Russian hacking group. That is why Papadopoulos, you know, tended to uh, believe that man. Misfit. Now, on May 6, Papadopoulos met Alexander Downer, the Australian High Commissioner to Britain in a London bar. They were, you know, having some drinks, and he told him about the Clinton emails. After WikiLeaks released hacked DNC emails on July 22nd, the Australian government on July 26th advised American authorities of the encounter between Downer and Papadopoulos. Receipt of this information spurred the entire launch of the FBI's 
Crossfire Hurricane Investigation on July 31st. Now you understand the timeline. You see why this was opened in the first place with the FBI. We're not talking about, you know, just the Clinton campaign. Michael Sussman came and gave all of that information to the FBI. But they also opened a separate investigation called Crossfire Hurricane based on this incident with George Papadopoulos. Two separate investigations. Let's continue. In late 2016, according to his May 2017 testimony to the House Intelligence Committee, CIA Director John Brennan convened a group of officials from the CIA, NSA, and FBI to investigate Russian interference. In a July 2017 interview, Brennan described this group effort as a, quote, fusion cell. According to his later testimony, Brennan gave the FBI leads involving, quote, contacts and interactions between Russian officials and U.S. persons involved in the Trump campaign, end quote, that were beyond, way beyond, the CIA's mandate to pursue. He said this information, quote, served as the basis for the FBI investigation to determine whether such collusion or cooperation occurred, end quote. Crossfire Hurricane initially targeted several people connected to the Trump campaign. Papadopoulos, Michael Flynn, Paul Manafort, Carter Page, and Roger Stone. During this investigation, the FBI used national security letters to obtain phone records and other documents. FBI agents, believing Trump would lose the election and aware of Trump's claims that the election was rigged against him, were careful not to uh, ensure the investigation did not become public. You know, they didn't want to be the reason that he lost or whatever, give him fuel to throw on the fire. However, after the election, texts on December 15, 2016, from the FBI lead investigator Peter Strzok to FBI attorney Lisa Page showed that Strzok was likely aware of what he took to be politically motivated leaks from other intelligence agencies. Also in these texts, Strzok calls Trump a fucking idiot and an enormous douche. Sorry, I don't mean to cuss, but those were his words. As well as him assuming or assuring, as well as him assuring Lisa Page not to worry if Trump wins the election, that he's got an insurance policy. Let's not forget, struck opened Operation Crossfire Hurricane in the first place. <clears throat> now, on September 7th, 2016, U.S. intelligence passed information to James Comey, director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation and Peter Strzok, Deputy Assistant Director of Counterintelligence, that in late July 2016, John Brennan had briefed President Barack Obama that U.S. intelligence had indications that Russian intelligence was alleging the U.S. presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, gosh, that's such a wordful, but that she had invented a plan for a scandal to link candidate Trump to Vladimir Putin the DNC email hack, and WikiLeaks release of the emails. So, John So, John Brennan literally told Barack Obama that intelli- U.S. intelligence indications said Russian intelligence 
was warning them of Hillary's plan to link Trump to all of this. This was disregarded, and they continued anyway. Now, on May or on January 6th, Comey, Clapper, Brennan, and Rogers briefed President-elect Trump on the Steele dossier. Before the briefing, it was planned that Comey would separately brief Trump on the most salacious aspects of the Steele dossier, quote, in the most discreet and least embarrassing way. As Comey later described it, quote, at the, at the conclusion of that briefing, I remained alone with the president-elect to brief him on some personally sensitive aspects of the information assembled during the assessment. Comey also assured Trump that he was not personally under investigation. He later testified that the FBI leadership had discussed the assurance in advance and that one member of the team, later revealed to be FBI General Counsel James Baker, had raised concerns about it. Wow, I wonder why the you know, general counsel of the FBI would be worried about lying to somebody in the FBI investigation. Because specifically, according to Comey's testimony, Baker felt that, quote, although it was technically true that we did not have a counterintelligence file case open on then-President-elect Trump, Nevertheless, because of the scope of the investigation, Trump's behavior, his conduct, will fall within the scope of that work. End quote. That's from the general counsel of the FBI. Let's remember that. Comey also refused to prosecute Hillary after she refused to turn over 33,000 emails from her work in the State Department. Remember that? Lock her up. Lock. Yeah, you remember? Yeah, this is what this is about. Now, she refused to turn over 33,000 emails from her work that she had kept on a personal email server for many years. This left those emails and all of her work vulnerable to foreign actors, who indeed did hack her server. She was then subpoenaed by the FBI for those emails, but destroyed them with a software designed to do so, called Bleach. Later, the emails were turned up on Anthony Weiner's computer. <laughs> Remember that goofball? And it was determined several emails were deemed to be confidential or higher classification. Comey, however, refused to prosecute Hillary and constructed out of thin air their own legal standards by which to defend themselves, saying in a press conference, quote, All the cases prosecuted involved some combination of clearly intentional and willful mishandling of the classified information, or vast quantities of material exposed in such a way as to support an inference of intentional misconduct, or indications of disloyalty to the United States, or efforts to obstruct justice. We do not see any of those things here. I need to put on some glasses, but he later continued, as a result, although the Department of Justice makes final decisions on matters like this, we are expressing to justice our view that no charges are appropriate in this case. In doing this, he clearly disregarded the evidence and even disregarded the law as even the New York Times had to admit. I mean, good Lord, the New York Times if you lost them, then you're doing bad, Democrats. I'm just saying. 
On May 8, 2017, Trump dismissed Comey from his tenure as FBI director. This created quite a hubbub, and more than 130 Democratic lawmakers of Congress called for a special counsel to be appointed in reaction to Comey's firing. I'd also be remiss to say that a lot of Republicans felt very uncomfortable about this as well. Therefore, on May 17, 2017, Rosenstein appointed Mueller as special counsel under the applicable Department of Justice regulation. And the special counsel investigation, also known as the Mueller, the Mueller probe, took over the crossfire hurricane efforts, which were still ongoing at the time. Rosenstein's authority to appoint Mueller arose due to attorney Jeff Sessions' recusal of himself in March 2017. In June of 2017, Peter Strzok, the FBI agent who again led the Crossfire Hurricane investigation up to this point, became a member of Mueller's team. But thankfully, in August 2017, Strzok was removed from the team and reassigned to the FBI's HR department following the Inspector General's discovery of text messages expressing a low opinion of Trump and stating that his preference stating his preference that Clinton should win the election by an overwhelming majority. You know, these are Strzok's text messages that were also uncovered between Lisa Page earlier. These are the same group of text messages. Now, a total of 34 individuals, 7 U.S. nationals, 26 Russian nationals, and 1 Dutch national, and, oh, and three Russian organizations, we're not done, guys, were indicted by Mueller's investigations. Eight have pleaded guilty or been convicted of felonies. Eight out of, like, 60? Okay. But anyways, including five Trump associates and campaign officials. None of those five convictions, quote, involved a conspiracy between the campaign and Russians. And Mueller did not charge or suggest charges for whether the Trump campaign worked with the Russians to influence the election, end quote. So after all this hubbub, guys, we end up with Mueller saying that there was no collusion. I mean, we have to admit that. Now... Many Republicans viewed the charges were simply technicalities of lying to the FBI about insignificant contacts in the case of Michael Flynn and Papadopoulos, or even worse, in the case of Roger Stone. Check this one out, guys. This is a much-looked-over story. Roger Stone, a longtime advisor to Donald Trump, was arrested by the FBI at a pre-dawn raid in Florida. There were helicopters literally over the overhead in the television uh, broadcasts about the, uh, the raid. The indictment filed by the Office of the Special Counsel contained seven charges, including obstructing an official proceeding, witness tampering, and lying to Congress in regard to the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. election and his involvement with WikiLeaks. Now, in the charging document, prosecutors alleged that after the first WikiLeaks release of hacked DNC emails in July 2016, 
A senior Trump campaign official was directed to contact Stone about any additional releases and what other damaging information WikiLeaks had regarding the Clinton campaign. Stone therefore told the Trump campaign about potential future releases of damaging material by WikiLeaks. The indictment also alleged that Stone had discussed WikiLeaks releases with multiple senior Trump campaign officials. However, by the time of those contacts, it had been publicly reported that the DNC emails had been hacked by Russians and provided to WikiLeaks. All this was public information. It was public record. Regardless of this, because Stone, you know, got the idea and told Trump officials that WikiLeaks might have more emails to release after they just released emails... Regardless of this, Stone was convicted of all charges in November 2019, and after the conclusion of the investigation, his sentence was commuted by Trump. In the case of Michael Flynn, there were even questions about whether they were entrapping Flynn from within the FBI himself. Yeah, you heard me. Unsealed FBI memos show that the Bureau, that the Bureau found, quote, no derogatory information, end quote on former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn while investigating his alleged Russian contacts and moved to close their investigation of him in early 2017, in January actually, before former FBI agent Peter Strzok intervened asking to keep the case open. It's kind of crazy how that name keeps popping up, isn't it? The FBI's closing communication was filed in the D.C field office on January 4th, 2017. But the same day Strzok, who interviewed Flynn in the White House later that month, texted a redacted individual, apparently Flynn's case agent, to ask, quote, if you haven't closed Razor, don't do so yet. Please keep it open for now, Strzok asked. He then messaged former FBI colleague Lisa Page, with whom he was having an affair, you know, not really important, but he told her that it was, quote, serendipitously good that the case was still open. Page responded, Further unsealed FBI memos and emails went on to reveal that on January 24th, 2017, the same day of the White House interview with Flynn that was conducted by FBI agents Peter Strzok and Joe Pienka, the handwritten notes of at least one agent believed the purpose of the interview was to entrap Flynn, or he believed that the goal of his fellow agents was trying to push back, or he believed, I'm so sorry guys, or he believed that was the goal of his fellow agents and was trying to push back on them in the name of institutional integrity. He said, quote, I believe we should rethink this. What is our goal? Truth slash admission or to get him to lie so we can prosecute him or get him fired? End quote. A further note raises the question that the Bureau could be, quote, seen as playing games. No fucking doubt. I'm sorry, I apologize. In December 2018, even former FBI Director James Comey admitted that the Flynn interview did not follow standard FBI procedures. 
saying it was, quote, something I probably wouldn't have done or maybe have gotten away with in a more organized administration, end quote. So I don't mean to cuss, but when everybody in the FBI and outside the FBI agrees that it's misconduct, I mean, come on. On March 24, 2019, Attorney General Barr sent a four-page letter to Congress regarding the special counsel's findings regarding Russian interference and obstruction of justice. Barr said that on the question of Russian interference in the election, Mueller detailed two ways, two, in which Russia attempted to influence the election. Firstly was disinformation and social media campaigns by the Internet Research Agency, which is a very large Russian disinformation organization. They, their whole purpose is literally to troll farm and be propaganda through social media. Back in the old days, they used to go to journalists and you know take them to steak dinners, treat them all nice, and get them to be sympathetic to the communist cause. Now they just troll farm and send thousands of, hundreds of thousands of bots to all these different social media platforms to cause social discord and secondly the second one was computer hacking this is the the second cause of you know Russian interference in in the election 2016 was computer hacking and strategic release of emails from the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign and Democratic Party organizations however Barr quoted the report as saying, The investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. End quote. On the question of obstruction of justice, which was highly pushed by Democrats, Barr said no conclusion was reached by the special counsel, noting that Mueller wrote, quote, While this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it does also not exonerate him, end quote. Barr and Rosenstein concluded that the evidence for obstruction of justice could not form the basis of a prosecution. And really, that's all that matters, guys. I mean, let's just be honest. If you can't prosecute somebody, how are you going to bring charges on them? If there's not the evidence to support that charge, you know? I mean, let's just... You can be as mad as you want, but if the evidence isn't there, it's not there. I'm not trying to defend. I'm just literally being honest right now. (laughs) But there was some more hubbub about a less redacted version of the report, which came but ultimately did not add much more to Mueller's determination. If it was to go any further, it was in the hands of Congress. That is exactly what Democrats were asking for, for almost two years at that point. So did they base Trump's impeachment with the facts derived from the Mueller investigation? Nope. Not at all. They actually just forgot about it and decided to try something else. Whew! That was a lot, guys. That, that was a lot of information to, to uh, take in all at once. But we've got quite a bit more to go. So if you want to take a break and pause, you can go ahead and do so now and... We'll start up again in a second. The Trump-Ukraine scandal, or Trump impeachment. 
First came efforts to undo the Trump presidency via the Electoral College by flipping enough electoral votes to reverse the result. A lot of people don't remember this, but after that failed, a California Democrat launched a, quote, impeach Trump leadership pack meant to co-opt the impeachment pretext du jour. Um, emoluments clause. I've never heard that word before, but emoluments clause violations, speculative mental ailments, representative Al Green's impassioned say-so, and give each of them something like professional sanction. So basically, there was a pack that co-opted impeachment pretexts, which were all these, you know, crazy ideas of like Trump being mentally handicapped or emoluments clause violations and stuff like that and giving them a professional backing and professional sanction. Then, of course, came the Russia probe, the trivial bombshells, the seething, the seething media firestorm, and decursive public hearings, the televised pre-dawn arrest of Roger Stone, helicopters in the air, and the theatrical buildup and relative inconsequence of the Mueller report. I mean, if you're going to go and spend millions of dollars, spend two years, at least come up with something. Don't just say... We have no charges, you know? We can't, there's nothing there. How are you gonna spend two years for nothing? Now, in August 2019, an anonymous intelligence official wrote a letter expressing concern over President Trump's July 25th phone conversation with Ukraine's President, Vladimir Zelensky. The official spoke of an urgent condition that Trump had used his office to, quote, solicit interference from a foreign country in the 2020 election. This led up to Bill Taylor, the acting charge of affairs in the US Embassy in Ukraine, delivering the coup de grace to the Trump presidency in October 2019. Taylor testified before members of the House committees leading the Democrats impeachment inquiry behind closed doors, but his opening statement was released to the public. Taylor's theory of President Trump's behavior is simple. Trump withheld hundreds of millions in congressionally authorized military aid in Ukraine or to Ukraine in order to benefit himself politically going into 2020 and particularly leveraging the aid to pressure the Ukrainian government to investigate his potential 2020 opponent Joe Biden and Biden's son Hunter with all the Burisma and uh, corruption allegations. All of Trump's talk about corruption in Ukraine was largely a smokescreen for pressuring Kyiv to investigate a political rival at the expense of both American taxpayers and Ukrainian national security. So now we have both competing sides, okay? We have that Trump just wanted to, you know, get political dirt on his opponent, Joe Biden, and his son to win in 2020. And the flip side was that Trump genuinely wanted to look into Ukrainian corruption and figure it out before he sends millions and millions of dollars of authorized military aid to Ukraine. I mean, wouldn't you want to know if 
hundreds of millions of dollars is getting sent to somewhere, if it's going to be going to what they say it's going to, or if it's just going to go down the corruption pipe. However, honestly, it could go both ways. Let's get into the brass tacks of it, though. Let's get into the weeds. In June 2017, Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, visited Ukraine and met with President Petro Poroshenko and Prosecutor General Yuri Lutensko. I'm so sorry if I'm butchering that. In August 2018, Giuliani was hired by a company run by Lev Parnas, a Ukrainian businessman. Giuliani clearly began funneling information provided by Parnas, by Parnas as well as Parnas's partner, Igor Fruman, to Trump. In late 2018, Parnas and Fruman fixed up Giuliani's, Giuliani with former Ukrainian prosecutor Viktor Shokin, as well as Prosecutor General Yuri, Yuri Lutinsko. According to Lutinsko, Giuliani pushed him to open investigations into the Bidens and Burisma. According to the New York Times, Giuliani met with Lutinsko multiple times in January 2019, allegedly asking Lutinsko about Burisma, the Bidens, and Marie Yovanovitch, the American ambassador to Ukraine. <clears throat> Giuliani told Trump about these conversations. In March 2019, Lutinsko opened two investigations, one into Burisma and one into Biden's. According to the Times, Lutinsko accused Yovanovitch of corruption as well. By April, Trump was telling Sean Hannity that Attorney General William Barr might consider allegations about Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election. By, 20, by April 29th, Yonovich was being recalled. The Wall Street Journal would later report that Giuliani was telling Trump that Yonovich was, quote, obstructing efforts to persuade Kiev to investigate former Vice President Joe Biden. In May 2019, the New York Times reported that Giuliani was set to visit Ukraine. Days later, Giuliani did an interview with Fox News in which he talked about his theory that Ukraine had worked with the Clinton campaign in 2016 and discussed Joe Biden's relationship with son Hunter. <clears throat> All of this was the backdrop to Trump's decision to pressure Ukraine. Now, was Giuliani telling Trump that he had a way of getting Biden or... Was he telling Trump that bad actors in Ukraine had covered up Ukrainian election interference in 2016 and Biden-related corruption? That difference of opinion is clear from the text revealed between Ambassador to the European Union Gordon Sondland, Special Envoy to Ukraine Kurt Volker, and Taylor. In those texts, Volker says, after explaining that he has fixed up a meeting between Giuliani and the Ukrainian representative, Quote, most important is for Zelensky to say that he will help investigation and address any specific personnel issues if there are any. <laughs> Volker would later reiterate this point, saying, Heard from White House, assuming President Z convinces Trump he will investigate slash get to the bottom of what happened in 2016. We will nail down date for a visit to Washington. Good luck, end quote. It appears that the American diplomats have fully accepted that Trump is simply listening to Giuliani now, and that pleasing Giuliani and thus Trump is the key to restoring aid. Taylor was incredulous about all this and read the investigation as a pretext for getting Biden from the start. 
quote, are we now saying that security assistant and White House meetings are coordinate are conditioned on investigations? He texted again. As I said on the phone, I think it's crazy to withhold security assistant for help with a political campaign. Sondland responded, Bill, I believe you are incorrect about President Trump's intentions. The president has been crystal clear, no, pre- no quid pro quos of any kind. The president is trying to evaluate whether Ukraine is truly going to adopt the transparency and reforms that President Zelensky promised during his campaign. I suggest we stop the back and forth by text. Sondland's written testimony suggests his confusion about Trump's agenda. He acknowledges that, quote, President Trump was skeptical that Ukraine was serious about reforms and anti-corruption, and he directed those of us present at the meeting to talk to Mr. Giuliani, his personal attorney, about his concerns. It was apparent to all of us that the key to changing the president's mind on Ukraine was Mr. Giuliani. He goes on to explain that, based on the president's direction, we were faced with a choice. We could abandon the goal of a White House meeting for President Zelensky, which we all believe was crucial to strengthening U.S.-Ukrainian ties and furthering long-held U.S. foreign policy goals in the region, or we could do as President Trump directed and talk to Mr. Giuliani to address the president's concerns. He says he, quote, did not understand until much later that Mr. Giuliani's agenda might have also included an effort to prompt the Ukrainians to investigate Vice President Biden or his son to involve Ukrainians directly or indirectly in the president's 2020 re-election campaign, end quote. He also says that he had spoken to Giuliani in short conversations in which Giuliani, quote, emphasized that the president wanted a public statement from President Zelensky committing Ukraine to look into anti-corruption issues. Mr. Giuliani specifically mentioned the 2016 election, including the DNC server, and Burisma as two anti-corruption investigatory topics of importance for the president. End quote. However, he denies any mention of the Bidens. He also says that his statement of no quid pro quos had taken place had taken place directly from conversations with Trump. I asked the president, what do you want from Ukraine? The president responded, nothing. There is no quid pro quo. The president repeated no quid pro quo multiple times. This is a very short call, and I recall the president was in a bad mood. End quote. In contrast with Sondland's lack of clarity on Trump's agenda, Taylor seems convinced that the entire Giuliani hunt was about Biden specifically and that Trump withheld the aid to target Biden. His written testimony repeatedly suggests as much. Like Sondland, he says he found that Giuliani was actually running the Ukraine show. By mid-July, he testified, quote, it was becoming clear to me that the meeting President Zelensky wanted was conditioned on the investigations of Burisma and alleged Ukrainian interference with the 2016 elections. It was also clear that this condition was driven by the irregular policy channel I had come to understand was guided by Mr. Giuliani, end quote. Later, he says he realized that security assistance was also conditioned on these terms. Quote, I sent Ambassador Sondland a text message asking if we are now saying that security assistant and a White House meeting are conditioned on investigations. Ambassador Sondland responded to me, responded asking me to call him, which I did. 
During the call, Ambassador Sondland told me that President Trump had told him that he wants President Zelensky to state publicly that Ukraine will investigate Burisma and alleged Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election. But again, this statement leaves unclear whether this effort was about clearing the decks for 2020 or whether it was about a badly informed, vindictive, but sincere attempt to cleanse Ukraine of corruption. Taylor obviously believes the former. He stated that the term investigations was, quote, used to mean matters related to the 2016 elections and, of course, Burisma and the Bidens, end quote. Now, Mick Mulvaney, Trump's chief of staff, has been roped into this debacle by virtue of Trump's ordering him to effectuate the withholding of the military aid. He gave a rather disastrous press conference in which he suggested that Trump had indeed engaged in a quid quo quo. But his comments didn't clear up the nature of the quid pro quo itself. Was it about Biden or about Trump's perceptions of Ukrainian corruption? Mulvaney seemed to suggest the latter. Did he, he said, quote, did he also mention to me in the past the corruption related to the DNC server? Absolutely. No question about that. But that's it. And that's why we held up the money. The look back to what happened in 2016 certainly was part of the thing that he was worried about in corruption with that nation. And that is absolutely appropriate. End quote. President Trump, however, was impeached by Congress on charges of abuse of power for the phone call and quid pro quo, and obstructing Congress for supposedly delaying releasing the call transcript. The articles of impeachment were referred to the Senate, which held a trial over 20 days from January 16th to February 5th, 2020. Trump was acquitted on both charges by the Republican-controlled Senate, with the vote split among party lines. Now, concerning Burisma and the Bidens, if you are curious about the accuracy of the corruption claims against the Biden family and shady business dealings with Ukraine, simply read the report by the U.S. Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs and U.S. Senate Committee on Finance Majority Staff Report. There is a link on my article if you would like to go check that out. Now, let's move on along to the Trump Raffensperger phone call. Possibly the key instance Democrats pointed to in the upcoming second impeachment of Trump was an hour-long conference call Trump made on January 2, 2021 to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Trump was joined by Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, Trade Advisor Pedro Navarro, Justice Department official John Lott, Law Professor, Law Professor John C. Eastman, and attorneys Rudy Giuliani, Clayton Mitchell, Alex Kaufman, and Kurt Hilbert. I don't know how they fit all those people in that room, but... <laughs> Raffensperger was joined by his general counsel, Ryan Germany. On January 3rd, the Washington Post and other media outlets obtained a recording of this phone conversation. During the phone call, Trump maintained falsely that he had won Georgia by, quote, hundreds of thousands of votes insisting that the certified election results were wrong. He said that Raffensperger should reevaluate the re <clears throat> He said that Raffensperger should reevaluate the election's results, citing a variety of different stories in the media of fraud regarding voting in the state. Raffensperger in response answered that the election results in the state were correct and legitimate, 
and that Trump had, quote, got his data wrong. During his phone call with Raffensperger, Trump said, quote, I just want to find 11,780 votes. This was the minimum number needed to overcome Biden's advantage in Georgia. Trump also tried to intimidate Raffensperger, hinting that Raffensperger and his attorney could face a possible criminal investigation. Trump said, quote, you know, that's a criminal offense. And, you know, you can't let that happen. That's a big risk to you, end quote. This is possibly the most damning thing Trump has done, but it certainly comes down to intent. Everyone can agree, either way it's inappropriate, but only one is illegal. It comes down to whether you think he made the phone call to Raffensperger purely to pressure him into finding the votes he knew weren't there, or if he truly did believe the stories of fraud coming from Georgia and was simply telling Raffensperger to do his job and do it right. Smart people can effectively argue both conclusions, but Trump's behavior surrounding the phone call certainly suggests to me he believed that fraud had taken place. Now we get to the second impeachment of Trump. Four scenarios for the removal of Trump from office had been posited by members of Congress, members of Trump's cabinet, political commentators, or legal scholars. Resignation, the invocation of the 14th Amendment, invocation of the 25th Amendment, or impeachment and conviction. None of these were successful, however, and on January 11, 2021, the House of Representatives of the 117th U.S. Congress adopted one article of impeachment against Trump of incitement of insurrection, stating that he had incited the January 6th attack of the U.S. Capitol. The article was introduced with more than 200 co-sponsors. The same day, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi gave Vice President Mike Pence an ultimatum to invoke Section 4 of the 25th Amendment to assume the role of acting president within 24 hours, or the House would proceed with impeachment proceedings. Pence said that he would not dare do so in a letter to Pelosi the following day, arguing that to do so would not, quote, be in the best interest of our nation or consistent with our Constitution, end quote. Nevertheless, a House majority, including Republican Adam Kinzinger, passed a resolution using Pence to invoke a 25th Amendment, the 25th Amendment. On January 11, 2021, U.S. Representative David Cicilline, along with Jamie Raskin and Ted Lieu, introduced an article of impeachment against Trump charging Trump with incitement of insurrection and urging his supporters to march on the Capitol building. The article contended that Trump made several statements that, quote, encouraged and foreseeably resulted in lawless action that interfered with Congress' constitutional duty to certify the election. It argued by his actions, Trump threatened the integrity of the democratic system, interfered with peaceful transition of power, and Imperialid, a co-equal branch of the government. I'm sorry, I'm trying to quote this. Doing so in a way that rendered him a threat to national security, democracy, and the Constitution if he were allowed to complete his term. Many Republicans pointed out, however, that Trump had also called for the protesters to peacefully and patriotically march to the Capitol, and that his term ended in literally a week. By the time it was introduced, 218 of the 222 House Democrats had signed on as co-sponsors, assuring its passage. Trump was impeached in a vote on January 13, 2021, 
Ten Republicans, including House Republican Conference Chairwoman Liz Cheney, joined all the Democrats in supporting this article. Bizarrely, in a move Republicans said supports their claims of the hearings being politically motivated, Democrats held a vote to be allowed to question witnesses, but then when granted that ability, reversed themselves and declared they would no longer be doing so. Critics also charged the fact that Pennsylvania had changed its voting procedure in a way that was unconstitutional to Pennsylvania's own law in the months leading up to the 2020 election. <clears throat> and that quashing of the Hunter Biden laptop story from going mainstream, along with wall-to-wall coverage for four years of Trump being terrible, and the massive push for mail-in voting in the months leading up to the election, had skewed the favor far away from Trump. That if they hadn't stole the election through voter fraud, they certainly had by those means. Also, in 2022, it has come to light that through DOJ filings that the former U.S. Congressman Michael Myers, 79 of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, pleaded guilty to to conspiracy to deprive voters of civil rights, robbery, obstruction of justice, falsification of voting records, and conspiring to illegally vote in a federal election and orchestrating schemes to fraudulently stuff the ballot boxes for specific Democratic candidates in the 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017, and 2018 Pennsylvania elections. That's a lot of charges. Dude was racking them up, wasn't he? Specifically, Myers admitted in court to bribing the judge of elections for the 39th Ward, 36th Division in South Philadelphia, Dominic J. DeMuro, and a fraudulent scheme over several years. DeMuro, who was charged separately and pleaded guilty in May 2020, was responsible for overseeing the entire election process and all voter activities of his division in accord with federal and state election laws. These these examples, along with others in Arizona and Georgia, led Trump and others to believe there indeed was something to all the misinformation flying around the 2020 election. Let us not also forget that the impeachment hearing's only charge against Trump was incitement, which was a legal standard that his actions on January 6th did not meet. To that effect, at the impeachment trial, 57 senators voted guilty, which was less than the two-thirds majority needed, which is 67, to convict Trump. 43 senators voted not guilty, resulting in Trump being acquitted of the charges on February 13, 2021. <clears throat> now we get to more recent events with the January 6th committee. I'm sure most of you remember that once the second impeachment had ended with Trump's second acquittal, the largest and most expansive investigation into Trump was initiated, the January 6th committee. It begins on a partisan basis with the creation of the panel itself being rejected by every single Republican in the Senate except for two, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. And as we noted, Liz Cheney voted on the impeachment. It it furthered along these lines with Democrats and Pelosi barring Republicans from even being on the committee if they had supported Trump in the past. She rejected Republican Jim Banks, a highly respected naval officer, and Representative Jim Jordan, the top Republican on the House Judiciary Committee. Pelosi had already appointed eight of the 13 members, all of which were very outspoken critics of President Trump, 
with the only Republican she appointed being Cheney and Kinzinger. These two actions led House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy to pull all five of his appointments and boycott the hearings entirely. Pelosi has the authority to approve or reject members per committee rules, but even she acknowledged her move was unusual. She said, quote, The unprecedented nature of January 6 demands this unpre- unprecedented decision. End quote. It seemed to most Republicans that the reason Speaker Pelosi refused to have Republicans such as Representative Jim Banks and Jordan on the select committee is because they said that any investigation by Congress should focus on why the the Capitol was so unprotected on January 6th, which is certainly relevant and likely would have reflected poorly on Speaker Pelosi, given that as Speaker, it was her duty to see that the Capitol was protected. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Something to think about. Many Republicans also point to the hypocrisy in Democrats' cries against not respecting election results. Just ask former presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, who has said on numerous occasions that, quote, you can have the election stolen from you. Or Stacey Abrams, who has still yet to concede the 2018 Georgia gubernatorial election. Even Nancy Pelosi's own picks for the select committee have questioned election outcomes or challenged the certification of the Electoral College, such as select committee chairman Benny Thompson, the chairman, who in 2017 boycotted Donald Trump's inauguration and called him, quote, an illegitimate president. Or Representative Adam Schiff, who spent two years repeatedly lying about evidence of collusion between Trump campaign and Russia which, as you know, resulted in nothing. Even Mueller said that there was nothing. No collusion. Then we have Representative Jamie Raskin, who's on the committee, who challenged the certification of the Electoral College on the House floor on January 6, 2017. Or, even more, you have Select Committee member Representative Zoe Lofgren, who co-authored a report advising against the certification of the Ohio Electoral College, a move which was then backed by Nancy Pelosi in a speech on the House floor in December 2004. I mean, these people are insane how hypocritical they are. In almost all of the hearings, save the last one, the committee spent their time detailing and debunking the many news stories over, viewers, over voter fraud that came out following the 2020 election. Like I said, there were very many. They argued that Trump knew that these stories were false and that he propagated them anyways. However, the two testimonies that they used most to prove that point are of Attorney General William Barr, which with Trump had a very tumultuous relationship and Barr's subordinate Deputy Attorney General Richard Donahue. They testified that they had told Trump the claims of voter fraud were, quote, not sustained by the evidence and bullshit. However, they failed to realize or draw the distinction that all of these claims were not, quote, unsubstantiated because they were indeed, there were indeed many news stories about these claims of voter fraud. And many of the legal inquiries and audits into election fraud were not conducted or were not even completed yet. In the final hearing, they detailed the 187 minutes that Trump allegedly knew about the rioters and did nothing about it. 
They brought forth testimony of that time frame, including wild testimony that didn't really add up with anybody else's accounts. This includes the idea that Trump grabbed the wheel of a moving Secret Service SUV and demanded to be taken back to the Capitol, and that he personally said out loud, maybe the rioters have the right idea, maybe they should hang Mike Pence. However, they failed to show in any way how Trump actively prevented the National Guard from being activated or prevented the quelling of the rioters at all, which is the whole point of the January 6th committee. It's the entire reason it was created. However, they also again tried to bring up the fact that Trump had told his supporters to, quote, fight like hell on January 6th, but again, failed to bring up the fact that he also told them to peacefully and patriotically, patriotically march. They must have forgotten the second impeachment of Trump where his defense played almost 20 minutes of Democratic lawmakers saying, literally, fight like hell over and over on various occasions. However, they have not completed their findings and reconvene in September to conclude the hearings. Perhaps they will prove their case then. And now we get to the raid on Mar-a-Lago. Yay! We're almost done, guys. Can you believe it? It's been a lot. It's been a lot of investigations into this man. Now, the big one. We don't really know much about this case, as it is still a breaking story. But we do know that on August 8th, over two dozen FBI agents searched Trump's personal home in Florida while he was in New York because the U.S. Department of Justice suspects the former president may have committed a crime. The crimes referenced are willful retention of national defense information, obstruction of federal investigation, and concealment or removal of government records. The search warrant shows FBI agents gathered evidence on August 8th as part of an investigation into whether Trump improperly handled government, doc handled government documents by taking them from the White House to Mar-a-Lago. It's worth noting here that the U.S. presidents must transfer all of their documents and emails to a government agency called the National Archives. Earlier in January, that agency said it had retrieved 15 boxes of papers from Mar-a-Lago, which Trump should have handed over when he left the White House. It said they included classified information and asked the Justice Department to investigate. To obtain the search warrant, prosecutors had to persuade a judge that they had probable cause to believe a crime may have taken place. We also know that the effort to seek a search warrant was signed off by the head of the Justice Department, Attorney General Merrick Garland, the top legal official in the United States. Now, currently 20 boxes worth of material were taken from Mar-a-Lago on August 8th, according to an inventory released alongside the search warrant. The FBI took 11 sets of classified files in total, including four that were labeled top secret. These sets were classified as secret documents, or three, three sets were classified as secret documents, and three were confidential. Some of these files were only meant to be kept in secure government facilities according to court documents, but the court records do not indicate what information these documents could contain, and there is much we do not know about the items on the inventory. For example, other, other materials taken include a binder of photos, a handwritten note, Trump's personal passports, and unspecified information about the president of France. I wonder what it is. 
What has Trump got on Macron? The passports were later returned to Trump, however. Most of this had been criticized due to the fact that Trump has said the documents were taken by the agents were all declassified and had been placed in secure storage at Mar-a-Lago. The power to declassify documents rests with the president, and he can essentially at any time declassify anything simply by saying it out loud. Of course, there is a process, but it is very little. Basically, people write on the fact that he has out loud said something that's been declassified. Trump has also said that he would have turned them over if the Justice Department had asked, especially seen as they have been in negotiations about documents as far back as January of this year. Donald Trump is also the Republican forerunner for 2024, and many on all sides of the aisle charge the FBI of being politically used to damage Trump's chances of running in 2024. Trump has also recently filed a lawsuit with the DOJ and asked a judge to freeze their investigations of files seized from his Mar-a-Lago home and to appoint an independent lawyer to oversee the documents that were taken. He demands a more detailed list of everything that was taken from his home and the immediate return of anything outside the scope of the investigation or under attorney-client privilege. His clients argue that he had been cooperating with agents for months and following their requests on how to handle the documents before they arrived unannounced at his home and that the warrant itself is overly broad as it allowed them to take anything they deemed as evidence as well as anything in the vicinity of that evidence. They argued that the search was a textbook definition of violating the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution, which protects Americans from unlawful search and seizures. We are now waiting on the release of the affidavit, the sworn evidence that was presented as a justification for the FBI raid. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt was heard, has heard both arguments and concluded that he was inclined to unseal some of the affidavit. He said the proposed redactions to the affidavit were so extensive as to make it meaningless if disclosed, though he said he believed it should, should still not remain completely sealed given public interest in the case. He has given the DOJ a, a deadline of August 25th to submit revisions to redactions in the affidavit. Well, we made it through, guys. I appreciate you sticking around and finishing out with us. It was a very informative and important article. And we have plenty more if you would like to listen now. Thank you very much, and I hope you have a great day. And don't forget to smile. Bye-bye. Thank you.